Welcome guys to the Good Podcast. I am Will Watson and in today's episode I'm speaking with Isabel Lazada who is a British author who combines humour with a serious look at her subject matter. She's worked as an actress, broadcaster and public speaker as well as a comedian and an author. But I'm particularly interested in hearing about her new book which is The Joyful Environmentalist which I have a copy of here which gets right to the heart of the issue and focuses on the huge difference that one person can actually make. So first of all Isabel thank you very much for being on the show i'm delighted to be at the do good podcast well really thrilled thank you no it's really good to have you and um just for me like going through the book the past week or so first of all i just want to say how much i love your writing style and how enjoyable it is and how how nicely it flows and how much because it says about you being a bit of comedian as well so the humor that comes through and there's many times where I just had a big smile on my face as well even though it's talking about quite you know um it's it's a challenging subject and it can trigger people but it's very Mm. um you know warm-hearted but very empowering so thank you for um yeah thank you for writing it so how um tell us a little bit about it then when did it when did the idea for it come and when did it start well, I've always written books, as you say, this is, my, this is my seventh book, and I've always written books that explore serious subjects with humour. And um, I think in a way that the more serious the subject is, the more important it is to have, to have humour um, in your approach. And I'd been reading books about the environment and about climate change for about two years, and I'd read some really serious books. I mean, really, really heavy books. And there's one very famous book by an author I very much admire. I'd read it all the way through twice and made notes. And the more I read it, the more depressed I got. <laughs> and um, the, the trouble is with the, uh, the climate change and the environmental movement is obviously a lot of brilliant writing has been done about the cause of the problem, um, what's got us this far, what's created such a mess, the nature of the problem, the details of the problem, the, the detail of the problem in the future. And I'm, I'm really deeply uninterested in the problem. This is why the first line of my book is, so what I'm doing is this. And even books that attempt to be more lighthearted about the environment, they always feel obliged to spend the first three chapters writing about the problem. And I'm, I just want to talk about solutions. So it's like, so what I'm doing is this, I'm assuming that the reader is intelligent, that they understand that climate change is real, that they've done a lot of work, environmental work themselves, that they're not a beginner, that they've been thinking about these things as long as I have. Um, and so I've, I've never believed in, in talking down to my reader. In fact, the reverse. I always assume that my readers are better informed <laughs> and better educated and more experienced in these areas than I am. Um, because frankly, usually they are. The only differences I'm exploring and writing about my own particular exploration in this area and recording it and hoping that some of it will be helpful. So yeah. there you go. Great to hear. Well, and um, what's fascinating is like how much in-depth research you do and you know, you've spent time with tribes in, in South Africa, you've gone to communities, um, eco-communities in Wales, and, you know, you've gone to all these different places and spoke with all these different experts as well. So I really admire how much you um, almost like very kind of investigative about the way you approach it. Well, the simple premise of the book was to look at, was to say, okay, if with the environment's first going to be 
going to be what's leading our decisions for the rest of our lives, I hope, regardless of who we are, what situation we're in, we've got to put the environment first. So for a dentist, we've got to be a dentist and environmentalist. Obviously, if we're a teacher, we've got to be a teacher and environmentalist. If, you know, whatever we do, we've got to be, a friend of mine said the other day, he was going to give a talk in a school on economics. I'm like, well, can you speak about economics plus environmentalism, please? You know, whatever we're doing, we need, we need to do that. So, so my premise was to look at every single aspect of my life from the point of view of what am I doing that's in this area that can help the environment. So I cover everything, the way we live, the way we, the way we dress, the way we heat our homes, the way we travel, the way we eat, the way we bank, the way we vote, everything. And um, so within that context, I was interested in speaking to some of the people that were directly impacting on my life. So you, you speak about the interviewing experts. They weren't just sort of random experts. One of them was uh, Juliet Davenport, who runs Good Energy, who was the company that provides the energy for my house. So, I mean, fortunately, I was already with, for about five years, I'd been with a, a green sustainable energy company, but I wanted to go and quiz her and ask her all the questions that you would ask your energy provider or the director of the company that's your energy provider. And hopefully you're not with, you know, a Shell BP type company. <laughs> um, if you got a chance to speak, speak to her. And similarly, my food, I have, I try to eat organic UK grown seasonal food. Um, and so I was interested to go and they always say, you know, those of us that are encouraging to be more mindful of our food, you know, get to know your farmer, know where it comes from, speak to them, you know, see it growing, you know, so, um, so I did and I'm, I have a delivery with Riverford, which yes, is slightly more expensive. Um, but I consider investing in organic uh, fruit and vegetables to be a long-term investment in my health. I mean, as, a low, as an author, I'm not on a high wage. I'm on a very low income, but I don't drive a car. There are many things that, you know, I don't go on, on big trips. I spend, you know, very little money, in fact, but, but what money I do spend, I like to spend on good quality fruit and veg. So I went down to interview Guy Watson, who runs Riverford, and asked him again all the questions that you would ask the person who's providing your food for you, you know, if you're not sensible enough to be growing your own, which uh, more and more people are now. Yeah, we are. And I think maybe with, um, you know, we're speaking at this time during COVID, which is still, still around and, but it's definitely inspired so many more people to get out in the garden and be growing. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. Um, people speak about money, but, but Ron Finley, the amazing American, uh, encourager of people to grow food says that growing your own food is like printing your own money which is a lovely quote i think and all these people that say they can't afford food i mean like just experiment with growing your own and see how much can be free you know obviously we'd, we'd have to be very experienced to be totally self-sufficient but i mean i don't know if you've tried buying organic tomatoes but my friend's got more in her garden than <laughs> she's going to be eating this year so yeah. um yeah we're just getting all the crop of apples at the moment for us. And it feels, oh. it feels really good to be having, having those apples, cutting them up and putting them in the, you know, the granola or the smoothie bowl in the morning. I'm so envious. I had my old house. I had an apple tree and I don't have one now. So I very much envy you the, to your own apples. What a, what a joy. Aren't they a joy too? It's like the joy. Also, I wanted to speak about the joy as well. So, so the idea of the joyful environmentalist is not just to look at all the things that we can do, but to look at all the things that give us joy that we can do. That, so that was the guiding principle because life is short. Right? We're all going to be dead soon. So I thought, 
you know, let's look at what we can do that helps the planet, but also enhances our own lives. And certainly planting and picking apples from your own tree and your own garden or even your neighbor's garden. That's a, that's a wonderful, simple example of that. Yeah, it does feel good. And we planted them about five years ago. And really? And each year we get more and more, as long as we look after the soil. Yes. And I will often go out and, um, you know, I'll urinate on the, on the soil. Bless the so- and- you'll bless the soil with your bodily fluids. Yes, I will. And it's funny, <laughs> I mainly do it on one of them. And the one that I do we, is, you know, has, um, has flourished. Really? Yeah, which is... Um, That's really interesting. It's not too acidic then or not too... I'm sure you have a very plant-based, good quality diet, Rob. But I would have thought it, it could be too much for a tree, but obviously not. The apples are obviously thriving. Yeah, I seem to be okay. Maybe I don't go too much over, overboard. <laughs> Good. But it's so true, like what Ron Finley said, you know, it can be so cheap to, to grow your own food and so much fun. It does bring you joy. Getting your hand yes. in the soil, planting seeds, seeing the fruits you labor. Don't get me wrong, I'm no great gardener and I make loads mm. of mistakes, but it's just, you know, it's just learn as you go with it and, and see what goes. And it's, the thing for me is that it's very empowering. As soon as COVID hit, people thought, where am I going to get my food from? That was the main yeah. thing. Where's, where's my food going to come from? And where's, where's my next money coming from? Such like that. They weren't thinking about other stuff. So it did inspire potentially hundreds of thousands of people in this country to go, okay, I'm going to start growing my own food. I'm going to have my own small holding. I'm going to start to get my own chickens. I'm going to do all these things, mm-hmm. which makes you feel more resilient. Because I think that's what we need in these times to feel a bit more resilient. Because and I, what I love about your book is, you didn't just hit everyone with the problems. You hit them with the Oh, no, I, I didn't. I don't discuss the problems at all. I do actually have two pages in it where I have a friend who's a climate scientist and a very, very brief interview with her um, where I basically say, okay, just explain about climate science to me. But even then, it's in the context of a conversation and she's also pregnant. And so this is how I, you know, I hopefully do educate the reader a little bit as I go through. But I, I'm more interested in the solutions. I mean, I've been thinking recently of reading the Paris Report, thinking it's really time, the Paris Agreement, thinking it's really time that I'd seriously sat down and read the Paris Agreement. Um, but I mean, if you gave me 340 pages of the Paris Agreement explaining the problem or 10-page document of things that I can do, then, you know, that's, I, I'm just scanning the books. I'm scanning all the books for things I can do. Someone just sent me another book to review recently, another ecological book, and I'm literally going through it. Like, where are the solutions pages? Is there anything I missed? So, um, so I'm enjoying yeah. focusing on solutions. Yeah, I think so, because they can be quite an alarmist view at times. And don't get me wrong, we have to change course, but sometimes mm. the information can be so overwhelming, it can actually be paralyzing for people. They can just feel like, well, what can I do? You know, they can look at, say, the Arctic ice cap melting and, you know, all other things happening. And they might think, well, what can little old me do? But the way you frame it is that one person can make a difference. And that one person tells another person and another person. And then it just spreads out over time. Well, obviously, to make real changes, the, these, these things need to be done at scale. But you know, I'm not the only one writing these things. It's happening everywhere. People are waking up everywhere, I think. And, um, you know, the message is certainly getting out there. And the reason I focus on on what we can do is because obviously that's our point of power. Um, we can make enormous changes in our own lives. I mean, like one, to take an obvious example, I mean, I looked at, I looked at, I look at banking in the, in the book and, um, 
if I'm doing everything in my life in ways to support the planet, then I don't want to be giving my money to a high street bank when I don't know where, you know, whether it's supporting the arms industry or whether it's supporting the petrochemical industry or whether it's supporting a local vivisection center. I mean, you could be a teacher deeply committed to public education and, you know, you could be unknowingly investing in the private school down the road, or you could be someone deeply committed to animal rights, and you could be unknowingly um, investing in the, some puppy farm down the road where they're, where they're, you know, they're doing vivisection on the dogs. I mean, you just don't know. So I wrote to my bank and I said, can you let me know? Is your lending and investment portfolio in the public domain? And if so, can you show me and can I look at it? And... Anyway, there's obviously a lot of kerfuffle going on. I pretended rather naughtily that I was writing a letter, an article for The Guardian about it. And um, I wasn't, I was writing a book, but the same difference. Anyway, about two weeks later, they wrote back to me with this long obscuration of, you know, what they were doing with, with the money, which basically boiled down to, no, it's not in the public domain, with all kinds of complicated explanations about ring fencing and, the difference between lending and investment. And I thought, I actually don't need to understand this. So then I, I got in touch with Triodos, um, the, the bank in Bristol that's at the top of the ethical consumer uh, list of ethical banks. And I said, is your lending and portfolio, your lending and investment portfolio in the public domain? And they said, yes, here's the link. You can look here. This is what we're lending to. So I thought, well, right. So that's an easy swap. So I swapped and it's and talk about joyful. I mean, I was when I was on Times Radio, the man said to me, Oh, well, doesn't sound to anything much joyful in swapping your bank. Sounds like a right pain in the ass. And I said, Well, actually, no, because for the first time in my life, I can say I've got a bank I'm proud of. I mean, I've never had that since I was 18. I've, I've never, I've just gone on being loyal to this same bank because out of laziness, I suppose, like so many of us that don't swap. And now I'm every time I get out my Triodos card, I'm, I feel a little bit of pride that I'm with a bank that I can believe in and that I want to support. Um, so that's an example of, uh, of joyful environmentalism. And then the, oh, and then I've got something really, really fun to tell you that if anybody's, if anybody watching this um, isn't with a sustainable energy provider, um, I've arranged for any, anybody that reads the book and is, and is uh, positively influenced by my interview with Juliet Davenport and decides that, okay, they'll move to good energy because good energy is one of the sustainable ones. I, I suddenly thought after the book was out, wait a minute, that would count as a referral. And some companies pay the person who's referred a new customer. And I'm thinking, they're going to get hundreds of new customers as a result of this book, but I can't take money or else it will look as if I've just done it to make the money. So I rang up Good Energy and I said, listen, my, what would normally be my referral fee because of the book? Is there any way that we can give that back to the customer who signed on? And I said, I noticed in a moment of what I consider to be utter genius on my part, Rob, <laughs> I noticed that they had a partnership with Vintage Roots, the organic wine company. And I'm also trying to support organic wine farmers and organic farmers in general so i said how about the hundred pounds that would normally come to me you give the reader a hundred pound voucher to spend at vintage roots then they get a hundred pound wine so as far as i know this is the only book <laughs> they could spend 10 pounds on the book and end up getting a hundred pound back 
to spend on organic wine. And I, you know, and someone sent me a picture yesterday and I'm sitting out in their garden with their, with their big box of their hundred pounds of organic wine. So, um, and of course, the more important point is that they're now with a sustainable energy provider. So that was a bit of a coup, I think. So I'm enjoying watching those, those postcards come in. And I think, you know, if anybody doesn't drink, then they could just give the wine to friends. You know, obviously I realise a lot of people out there don't drink now. But um, if you don't drink, you can just be very popular with friends and neighbours, can't you? By giving your organic wine away. So I was rather pleased with that one. Yeah, you should be. That's a great idea. And I know uh, Julia and um, Good Energy uh, pretty well. And what I like, oh, about yes. good, what I like about Good Energy is... They tend to use mostly people who, is it, I might think they've got solar power already on the homes and they kind of sell it from, they kind of buy it mainly from them rather than say big, you know, big solar farms in places. I quite like that they tend to be more using the users. They, they say that they like to be more like Airbnb than like a hotel chain. They're trying to encourage people to be more self-sufficient with their energy use I, unfortunately i don't have a roof here so i i don't have solar but yes they're very creative in their approach and they're and as you'll see if you have time to read my interview with juliet in full um it's quite complex and we go into you know we go into quite a lot of of issues i had as part of my research for the book because i was genuinely trying to look at lowering my co2 usage i had the government come round and do their energy proficiency test on the house and I was very confused because they can and I expected them to look at my old gas boiler and go, well, this is going to have to go if you're even going to pass the test. You know, you need a new electric system. They came on, no, they actually encourage you to keep the gas. At that point, I was ready to believe every conspiracy theory in the world. And um, so I, I chatted all this through with Juliet. And the reason that the energy proficiency test does that is because all they're looking is the amount of energy that you're using. They're not looking at the quality of the energy that you're using. But obviously, if you think long term, then we need to, I'm like, my, I've got two rings on my, on my old gas hob have died completely. So my gas hob is reaching the stage where I really got to replace it now. And I will replace it with, uh, you know, with electric because, um, you know, thinking going forward, especially as I'm with green energy, I know that what I'm putting, I know I'm taking my energy from the grid. I go into all this in the book. It's a little bit complicated. Obviously, we're all taking energy from the same grid. But if you're with a, a sustainable energy provider, then the energy that my money is putting in is coming from a sustainable source. So my bit is to put that in and then take out as little as possible. Juliet also has all kinds of lovely money-saving tips that I didn't know about. Like as she says, you know, if it's a sunny day, do your washing because there's more solar going into the grid. If it's a, if it's a very windy day, do your washing, because there's more coming in through, through wind power that day. There's literally more energy available. So she's got all kinds of wonderful tips like that. I, I, enjoy, the, I enjoy the aspect of um, joyful environmentalism that actually means that, we can, that we're also spending less, because I'm aware there's a lot of people out there you know, that, that are also dealing with poverty. So when I say actually, a bit like the food that we were talking about, if you do this, you'll be spending less money rather than more money. Um, I enjoy that aspect of the challenge as well. Yeah, one of the stories that I liked in the book was actually making, using energy, um, less energy, more fun. So for instance, you had a story where I think it was an old boyfriend and you had two kids and the kids 
wouldn't um would stay up late and they'd always be on the phones oh, and, yes. and stuff and you know it was it was creating it and i loved the way you set about making it a fun and creative kind of settled environment making it not you didn't you took the phones away from them but it wasn't like right give us your phones it felt like it was like you made it fun and you know it was all like candlelit night and yeah. it was a good way to save energy so we 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 recreated this isn't this is about um this is a section in the book actually it was really sweet rob someone said this section made them cry um because it was about the loss of night and the loss of evening and how we've lost that time when people sit together in the dark and it's a kind of a loss of intimacy because i mean if you've got some if i've got some really personal issue to me and i'm spending the evening with you it's sometimes hard to share what's in our hearts when we're sharing when we're staring at each other you know in broad daylight but if you're just sitting next to someone in the darkness or we're just flickering candles there's an intimacy there's a, there's a privacy and like a womb like nature of that that enables people to to share more intimacy and that's that's one of the things that's been lost and so i was talking about yes playing if you've got children of just pretending there's a power cut <laughs> and going for a period of time where there's no light in the evening you know after so when it so when it gets dark you go to sleep and when it wakes up when it gets light you wake up and, and you're talking about me living with with tribal peoples yes i visited the ashaninka tribe in in south america and there's no artificial light there and you never hear children complaining about having to go to bed. I mean, it'd be crazy. Uh, or, or complaining about getting up in the morning because they, when it gets light, the whole village wakes up. Or when it gets dark, the whole village goes to sleep. I mean, you know, this, and um, this is one, one of the things that's, that's been lost. Yes, light. We've lost, we've lost darkness. We've lost silence. You know, so um, a lot of these things, I think, are very enriching to explore. And obviously real food real bread, you know, real art. So yes, a lot of it I hope is very enriching. I'd imagine in that tribe in South Africa as well that It was South America actually, Rob. Oh sorry, South America. It's all right, just to just in case anyone has an interest. It was the Ashaninka tribe in the Amazonian forests of South America. Yeah. Um yeah they um what's interesting about it is um I can imagine the anxiety levels and depression levels in that tribe would be pretty much non-existent um, to an extent in terms of because they're more in harmony. You know, they, as you say, they rise mm. with the sun, they go down with it, they're in tune with nature. The circadian yeah. rhythm is going to be in, in, in yeah. the right kind of mindset. You know, yeah. The way we live now, some of us, and I felt for a lot of people during lockdown who lived in, in city centers in flats, that mm. feel no outside space, just in this block, probably on mm, the mm, mm, a lot of time. And mm. you just see like that tribe in South America just feels like that's how if more of us can move back to getting in tune with our roots more. Yes, and of course they were living completely off the land. I should mention that this is not in this book. My visit to, to the Ashaninka is in a previous book, The Battersea Park Road to Paradise. The story of visiting them is in there. But yes, and they were also obviously growing all their own food growing, making, weaving their own clothes out of the cotton that they pick and the women weave. Um, so, and yes, and what, what was so wonderful, Rob, is, you, is the children, you never hear the children cry. And there's a section in it where there was a little girl, she must have been about 12, and she spent about two hours preparing vegetables and just singing and preparing vegetables. 
You can imagine a child in our, in our society, they, they'd do it for two minutes and they'd start crying, wouldn't they? They would be unable to peel vegetables for two hours. Or most children would, not all of them, I say. Not all of them. It actually reminds me of, I'm reading the continuing concept at the moment. Oh, that's the very, yes, of course. No wonder you're interested in this. Yes, of course. Yeah. Jean, Jean Ludlow writes about that in great detail in, her, in that lovely book. Yeah, and it just, you know, I'm about to become a father for the first time, you see, so I am... Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So I, I am attempting to do my best the way we're going to bring this child into the world. And it's not going to be easy living in this country at times, but we can still apply certain techniques. And, and just reading that, you just it just makes so much sense. And what you're talking about as well, it just makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is solutions that we can get back to that way of being. So yeah. o- other parts in your book then that you talk about, you... Um, I know that you took a trip up to Scotland, like planting trees seems to be, you know, another great fun way that, you know, we can restore the habitats, restore, clean the air. Um, mm. So I'd love to hear. Well, one of the things I, I look at in the book is obviously uh, leisure, the way we spend our leisure time. And I went up and spent a week uh, with a charity called Trees for Life. And they are, re- they're not, sadly, they're not taking any volunteer weeks until next year because of covid but if you look up trees for life it's the most extraordinarily beautiful way i mean i was joking with him in 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 the south we think we've done something wonderful if we plant a tree <laughs> you go up there and you're you're in the highlands and they're replanting the caledonian forest they're hoping to plant trees right across a, a belt of scotland and so you're the ancient forests that they're, they're replanting them and it's um Yes, it was wonderful to wake up early in the morning and to walk up the hills, walk up these beautiful hillsides and that are bare uh, because of the, the deer and the sheep, uh, which is something I explain over there in, in the book that, you know, the Scottish are very fond of their, their, their stags and the Americans and various other people are very fond of shooting their stags. And if you're a Scottish farmer, you can make more money if you've got more stags. And so the result is that all the land is overgrazed and any tree that tries to, you know, just kind of poke its way up through the earth is instantly going to be eaten by something. And so uh, what Trees for Life do is they do two very clever things. One is they, they fence off whole areas and then the trees just can naturally regrow. Um, and then the other thing they do is there are areas where they fence them off and then they, re- they give nature a helping hand, they plant them. But it's so moving, Rob. It's so moving. You have this little, this little tree that's about this big, you know, a rowan tree or something in 500 years' time is going to be growing. You know, you dig this little tiny hole and put a little bit of mycelium, whatever it's called in, some complex thing, a little bit of something to help the roots out. And you put it in and you push it down and you think, you know, good luck for the next 400 years, little, little, little tree. So moving. And when it's a rowan tree, you know that it's going to grow. It's going to be covered in berries. The birds are going to come. You know, I'll be long in my grave and those trees that I spent a week planting. We planted thousands of trees. We were a group of 10. We were working all day, every day for, for about 10 days. It was absolutely exhausting. You know, but if you're young and fit, can walk up a steep hill. I, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. So yes, I, I, so this is one of the one of the chapters in the book where I go and uh, spend some time in in nature. Genuinely, I hope you know, making a difference, not just a symbolic difference. I also do guerrilla gardening locally, which is enormous fun. Just gardening in places where you're not supposed to. That's joyful. <laughs> 
<laughs> you go out in the dead of night and clear a load of litter, put down a, dig out a load of dead earth, put a load of compost and plant things. Yeah. Bad, bad people planting things in public places where they want to just have litter. Yes, I love gorilla gardening. Yeah, brings out my, my inner naughty person, loves it. I bet it does, yeah. We've got a rebel in all this, haven't we? Um, I yeah, had, yeah, yeah. I had Pam Warhurst, who's the co-founder of Incredible Edible, on the podcast recently, and you know, she started that up in Todmonton, up in the north, and um, it's amazing. You know, just to show what you can do, you turn in just bits which the council tend to look at, which just get mowed, handing that over to people in the community and allowing them to grow fruit trees and all sorts of stuff and just people it's you know it makes so much sense and hearing about you being up in scotland i came across a man last week and um he's called the forest man of india now i'm not going to do his name just, i love him already his name <laughs> is um i think it's jadiv panang i'll put a link to it in the show notes and okay. he is um he's he spent a lifetime of planting tens of thousands of trees over the course of 40 oh. years Mm. Every single day, he would go and plant a tree, and he's turned this area in in India, which is literally hundreds and hundreds of hectares, into this incredible forest. I think I saw a video actually. It might have been him. He's quite elderly now, is he? He's quite elderly, and I think the first he first became quite prominent, maybe not twenty thirteen, but people keep mm. going back and interviewing him and stuff. And it's just it's a beautiful story to show, and I think it yes, ties into. Yes what you're saying is that the power of what one individual can actually do as well, if they've got the right intention behind them and the, you know, the right belief. And also, you know, it's just like you saying, planting trees. Okay. It's, it can be hard work for that week, but you're out in nature, you're getting the exercise, you're feeling connected. Oh, listen, if you're young and healthy trees for life, UK, just, just look them up. And, and if they've got a space next year, if they're open, you know, you're obviously going to be busy being a new father, but for other people who are watching this, it's a, it's a wonderful way to spend some time with a with a with a partner or with someone that you you know to find out what they're made of and how they get on with people. And the other thing I loved about being there was that all the people there were very knowledgeable about trees. You know, I've never been among real naturalists before. You know, who who discuss trees with the Latin names, and I was, like, I was so impressed. <laughs> that sounds great and for those who might not be able to go and plant trees haven't got the um you know the energy or the time or whatever mm. there's actually an app that i use called tree app and you can plant a tree every single day on it all you do is you log on and mm. you choose which part of the world which you want to and there was a place in scotland recently or you can choose the himalayan mountains or um, madagascar and all these different places and it teaches you about what they're doing and, and you can literally just go through you're on it for 30 seconds and you plant a tree every day and ecosia as a search engine as well i don't know if you i mentioned that in the book as well don't don't use google as your search engine use ecosia because once you've done a certain number of searches they they notch it up and they plant trees as well yeah um it's all these simple solutions like things that we do every single day mm. you're just doing it different like you're saying about banking or where we use your energy we can we can make significant changes that feel really good without you having to put a significant amount of effort sometimes in stuff. Yes. It's just a matter of yes. being more conscious and doing a bit of research or reading your book and, and, and taking them, um, you know, just following up on some of them. It's like, <laughs> I think you say in the book, it's like, listen, it's okay. I've sorted it out for you. You know, you can, you can just. My, my, my publicist just came up with the most fantastic description of how to change the world, which I really loved. And she said, um, make first of all oh yes changing the world can be broken down into easy steps first of all choose your favorite tea make yourself a cup of your favorite tea sit down in your most comfortable chair to three 
read the joyful environmentalist <laughs> I, said to her, I love this i love this even i can manage this make tea sit down read a book yes i love that so um yes and hopefully the joyful environmentalist makes people laugh as well um but what was i going to say to you oh yes about about joy and and pleasure as a guide for example i, I was just telling you that i was Earlier today, I was at an event where various chefs were discussing how food can have a positive impact on the planet. And because they're all chefs, they love to say, well, it's very important to be eating less meat because if we eat less meat, it's more helpful for the planet. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, how about eating no meat at all? That's even more helpful for the planet. But obviously, because people feel very viscerally about what they eat, I, d I just don't go down that path at all. I just talk about all the joyful plant-based cookbooks I know. In fact, I, I tried to make a list for the end of the book about all the most wonderful vegan and plant-based books and to put a list of 10 of them. And I actually couldn't stop at 10 because there's so many, I had to extend it to 15. But I mean, there's, there's so much wonderful, you know, Indian, for example, and, and just, oh, so uh so yes again it's i think it's about you know letting joy letting pleasure lead us and and people say well you know i'd love to become a plant-based eater but my husband you know he doesn't like it or my wife doesn't like it and i'm saying well don't don't worry about what you're taking away just learn a range of amazing vegan vegetarian curries you know present <laughs> but pile on the good stuff you know let let joy let pleasure lead uh, then you don't you know you don't have to worry about what you're losing and clothes as well clothes is another thing i talk about in the book as we know the fashion industry is absolutely it's got to go frankly i just watched last night a, a trailer for the new uh, greta thunberg i am greta film it's coming out in november but i was fortunate to see an advanced film and i mean you know there's a simplicity in greta's thought that's just absolutely lovely you know she's vegan she doesn't buy new clothes Boom, boom. <laughs> you know, there's no, oh, well, yes, we should have less of this. And we should know, like, no, no, let's just be clear here. You know, the house is on fire. So I'm, I talk a lot about clothes and fashion and, you know, wearing, not buying new clothes, buying secondhand clothes. This beautiful silk top I'm wearing, I went mad in the charity shop one day, spent £10 on this. It's got some, some designer label. They'd even mark, oh, it's just absolutely beautiful. It's got gorgeous cuffs and everything. So, um, I mean, we don't, we don't need to buy new clothes, um, anyone who's listening. They say that we wear 20% of our clothes 80% of the time. So the other 80% of our clothes just don't get worn. So we end up not really appreciating what we have. And it's also been said that if we didn't buy any new clothes at all, we'd all have enough clothes to last for the next 10 years. I mean, you don't see people walking the streets naked, do you? You don't because everybody, everybody has clothes. So another thing about this, another thing about saving money, you know, just don't buy new clothes, full stop. I mean, you talk about having, having a child. I mean, obviously you want a couple of one or two new things because you've got a new baby and it's the most special time in your life. But unfortunately you will be, so many people will give you baby clothes. You'll probably be given enough baby clothes for, for 20 children. You'll have sacks of them will arrive from every single person that's had a baby over the last 10 years will bring you their baby clothes. So no, we really don't need, um, we don't need to buy new clothes. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. That out of, 
out of all the things, like you say, we could all go without buying any clothes for 12 months or longer. You know, there's I think, well, 10, 10 years, they say, Rob. 10 years. We could go 10 years. Nobody's going to be walking the streets naked. Exactly. And, ben. yeah, and, you know, you touch on, um, like, children's stuff. Like, for instance, what we've done so far, 90% of our stuff that we've got, pram, mm. car, all this stuff, it's all been either second second hand mm. or we've been mm. given it for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Passed yeah, on. Yeah. And I yeah. think what it is is we know some people who have had multiple kids mm. and they won't allow their second child to wear the same clothes as the first one. It, it was like as if they felt like, well, you know, they, no, they need new clothes. And it was like as if they will get judged. So there's an element. And I think basically what it is is the marketing campaigns, the advertising campaigns. Yeah. I've done yeah, a right yeah. job on people of brainwashing them to think that yeah. they have new stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not even it's not even good new stuff either. It's no. just cheap new stuff. Um, and I, I talk in the book again to get back to the to the Ashaninka about having things that people that you know have made. The joy of having. I'm just trying to find. Oh, is it here? No, I just. I've got a friend who who has a has an elderly mother who started making face masks. You know, she's sitting at home just with her sewing machine making face masks. Like three pounds she's selling them for. One pound fifty for herself and one pound fifty for her local church. Takes her an hour and a half to make a face mask. I said to my friend, I'm not giving her less than five pounds. I said, I'd like to order four, but she's going to get five pounds. Anyway, anyway, it's just so lovely to wear something that I know who's made it. And I've got a jumper, again, a, a cardigan that I was given years ago. It was made for me about 30 years ago. And there's love in every stitch. You know, and, to, and for those children to have something, they'd be better to have one garment that they've seen somebody make specially for them as second children, you know, than to have 10 new things from Primark that they're going to fall apart in a week anyway. Yeah. And so, think... yeah, so we agreed on that. I mean, we need to change, we need to change our ways in almost every way, especially everything, anything that we buy, anything that we eat, anywhere we're spending money. We're so, we're so powerful as consumers. Like they say, as, as you know, we, we have three votes a day with what we eat. No, if you if you if you're able to buy organic, locally sourced food, then you're supporting organic farmers locally to you. You know, if, if you buy something that is that is not organic, then you're encouraging people to spray pesticides and crap on the land. You're killing the insects. You're damaging your own health. Um, and so we're we're very we're powerful every day as consumers and and in the choices that we make. Yeah, we've got are. lots more power than we think, and I think that stops people feeling miserable as well. Because you you're miserable when you feel powerless. Depression it comes from being up against a wall that you feel you can't do anything about. But if you're able to take an action, even a simpler a simplest action, like yesterday, I have a, I have a group on on Facebook for people who've read the Joyful Environmentalist. It's a, and um, it's only about 550 people at the moment, but it's, it's growing. And it's, um, someone wrote yesterday to complain about, it was just a little request to write to Tampax to stop them using plastic applicators because the applicators end up, women throw them down the toilet or girls throw them down the toilet and then they go through the river system and then they up, end up on the beach. So this woman has got this campaign going, just write to this address, please ask Tampax, please stop making plastic applicators. Writing that letter took me about five minutes. Maybe 10 with finding the notepaper, using the pen, sticking the stamp on and walking to the post box. But again, it, it, 
strangely pleasing to write that letter and to let Tampax know here's one more person again that is not interested in their plastic nonsense. So yes, taking actions um, is a is a great way, you know, is an alleviant to feeling overwhelm and depression and things. Through taking those actions, you actually start to build momentum. You connect with other people, with other groups, with like-minded individuals. You can start little community collectives. You can do all these sort of things can just come from actually taking some steps to doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, that that always feels good for me. Um, I was going to see about uh, one thing I'm fascinated about hearing is about you, um, the off grid living, you know, Lamas community down. Oh yes. And like we tried to go there a few years ago, but for some reason we just couldn't, we couldn't get, we were literally in the town and we thought we were going to go in and see them. And I remember watching, the uh, Kevin McLeod Grand Designs where it followed a family for five years and it showed their journey. And I'd love mm. to hear a bit more about it because I am so fascinated by what not only living more on the land and off grid, but actually living within mm. community. You know, like I'm thinking we're about to have this child and ideally you want, you kind of want a village to be raising your child. You don't just want it to be two of us just in having our, and it's a lot of pressure for, in that way, you know, to open it mm. up. And I love, you know, mm. it, there's something about it. And also what I'm really fascinated about it is it's people can do it. It doesn't, it doesn't cost the earth literally money wise. What's the average price of a house in the UK? 300,000 pounds, 200,000 pounds in Lamas, 25,000, 50,000 you set. But I know there's often, there's a lot of regulations in place, but I'd love to hear about your journey going there and, and what you, what you found out. Well, I was interested in, seeing what I mean I'm always learning on behalf of my reader you know I mean and so I was interested in seeing where this journey of cutting our energy cutting our energy cutting our energy use you know trying to live within our own co2 our carbon footprint Ultimately, of course, that leads to not wanting to take energy off the grid at all, which would lead to off-grid living. So I was interested in, in exploring off-grid living, but I felt a little bit of a fake on the, the, the course I was on because I was really just there to learn. I wasn't really intending. Many of the families that were there, like, like you and maybe your wife and baby, they, had, they genuinely wanted to explore this as a life choice uh, and I was really just there to learn and to and to explore and to write about it. Um, but it's not easy because it's not an easy life choice because if you, you're you're not allowed under English or Scottish or Welsh or Irish law to just go and buy a field and build a house and live in it. The only way that you can do that is if you can prove that you can live off the land. Um, you're not allowed to go and buy a house in the middle of a field and just work digitally you have to let the land otherwise we would have no more countryside because everybody this so this was the ancient town and countries act many years ago obviously all the people was told to live in towns and then the you know the landowners the gentry had the and you know that we peasants were not allowed to just move into the countryside so there are very strict laws that and one of the laws is that you have to prove that you can live off the land and so people have got various ways of living off the land. I mean, some people grow vegetables. There was one woman there um, who was making ancient honeys. There was an, a honey by an ancient system. 
there was another woman there who was growing plants and making kimchi and selling kimchi to the community. There were people who um, are just growing enough food that they can live from it. Obviously the Lamas community takes workshops such as this one. So they, they growing food off the land. So it was, well, you'll, you'll see if you read that section, you'll, you'll see my experience, but yes, what was wonderful, as you say, was, was the community it was the fact, you know, in the evening, we all ate together. There was a fire. We all sat around the fire in the evenings we had our workshops, we learnt, you know, some of the ancient ways. I'd never used a scythe before. I can inform you that working with a scythe is very hard work. <laughs> and um, picking vegetables, it was, it was, it was wonderful. But it was, it's the course that I was on was a genuine course about how to, if you want to move away from the rat race and you want to really live off grid, it was a course for people who had a genuine intent to do that in one way or another. And as the man who runs the course says, um, they protect people who want to do that by making it hard. You know, you, you have to prove that you have a real plan um, in order to get government permission to build. And so it's all very carefully. And, and what they teach you at Lamas is don't try and get around the rules, follow the rules very strictly, and then your boxes will get ticked and don't try and cheat. Um, so it, it's an interesting, an interesting course and lovely people. Yeah, definitely. Definitely feels that way. And I believe actually the the home that was on the Grand Designs, actually, I don't know when you actually visited, but I think a few years ago, it actually burnt down, unfortunately. Um, I heard that um, story, the main one, the, the couple that were on there with a couple of kids. I'm sure that's standard across them all. And um, I don't know if you heard about that when you were there. Well, if it's the main home, it would have been Hoppy and Wimbush's home. And it was certainly still standing when I was there oh. a couple of years ago. I don't, yeah. I don't, I didn't hear any stories of anything burning down. Right, okay. Yeah, but I think it's been rebuilt and there's a big crowdfunding online and everyone supported it, so they managed to, to rebuild it. Oh, well, I didn't hear that. I don't know, don't know believe, about that story. And I believe actually recently there's just a house has just gone on the market there where people people can actually buy. It's I'm surprised it's a, that's the way it can be done, but obviously it is, um, but that's available if people uh, don't want to just go at it from the beginning and build the harm. There's, there's an opportunity to move into that community as well. So You can, but it's very, very remote. I mean, as a, as a new family, I mean, I hope you're very fond of the, your wife and the mother of your new child. Because <laughs> obviously the trouble is if you're living somewhere very remote, um, you're going to see an awful lot of that person. You know, so it, it's quite testing for people. And as they, as they say there, it, it, it's lovely in the summer, but if it's December, it's pouring with rain, it's freezing cold, you've got a leak in the ceiling and you've had a row with your partner, you know, a lot of people just think, what am I doing here? Yeah. You know, and they end up going back to the city. But, um, but, but in, terms of, in terms of my book, in terms of Joyful Environmentalist, I'm, I'm really interested in, 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 you know, in helping people where they're at. So I'm interested in, in being relevant to the maximum number of people that, you know, know the maximum number of readers. So that's why I was also looking at, um, I mean, things like gardening, things like composting, things like, you know, the, the, 
the number of I've had some lovely letters Rob I think my life's not in vain because I've had some lovely letters from people saying I've just bought I've read your book and I've just bought my first compost bin and I'm thinking right well now I can die because someone out there has bought a compost bin and they're going to start composting because they read my book I mean that's fantastically rewarding and um so I've I've tried to fill the stories what maybe what I should say to to people listening is the Joyful Environmentalist is not a straight non-fiction book. It's not a how-to book. It's my own journey. So it comes in story form. So it's the story of my experiences up planting trees in Scotland and the stories of my experiences visiting NEP and the stories of my experience of, say, turning out the lights. And then there are interviews thrown in, like my meeting with, as we said, with Juliet Davenport or with Guy Singe or with Safia Mini, who's the person who founded... Um, People Tree, which is one of the the found the one of the first ethical fashion um, houses that began to look at the at the chain, the supply chain of the of the produce, the the cloth and the workers and the conditions of the workers. Obviously, that's very much in the news at the moment. Yeah, and um, one thing I'd like you to touch on is you talk about voting as well, don't you? In in the book. Yes. Um, at the time when I was writing the book um, and I was trying to put everything that I was doing, I was trying to let the environment be my, be my guide. And um, I've always been a swing voter. I swing between Green and Labour. And I thought in this particular vote, which was the European election, I thought, well, okay, if everything I'm, if, if the environment is, everything is guiding has become the most important issue, then I should vote green. I should vote with my heart, with great joy. And I'll go out and do some lobbying for the Green Party. So I went out and did some canvassing door to door. Uh, so interesting. Certainly a way to get to know your neighbourhood. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the wealthy areas and just talking to people about why they were voting for who they were voting for and why they made that choice. And um, yes, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people feel that the environment is the most important issue. I mean, my, my, my best moment that day was, was talking around a, a far-right voter who, um, who had... I mean, I just happened to spot that he'd got these wolf tattoos on his arm and he'd got photographs of dolphins on the wall in his doorway and he was telling me that he was voting far-right. And I was saying, well, I'm voting for these guys. So we started to talk about nature and about the environment. And by the end of a 15 minute conversation, he said, you're right, I, I want to vote for these guys too. So I talked to him round, but one more green vote, sadly. They did well in that particular election, actually. Um, they, that, was the, that was the election in which the Greens did, did really, really well. They've done less well since, sadly. Yeah, unfortunately, because of the system, um, you know, we need to move to proportional representation for actually, yes. you know, like the Green Party or other parties could actually get a first shout. Otherwise, people might think it's a wasted vote and in the grand scheme of stuff, which I'm not yes. saying it is. But... Which it often is, which it often is not. And I've had to vote Labour since then. I mean, that was when I was, that was in that particular election. But the last election, I, you know, I did vote Labour. I, I mean, we have a wonderful local Labour uh, MP. She's partially sighted and a woman and black and just brilliant and she's uh, very active and I just wanted her to get in so 
<sighs> I wrote to her just a couple of days ago asking her if she was supporting the climate and environmental emergency bill that Caroline Lucas has just put forward said oh i wanted to explain about being a little bit activist because it's just the best phrase oh we haven't even mentioned extinction rebellion um so there's there's a phrase in the book where i interview this climate scientist as i said about the environment and she says um at the end of the interview she says it's good to be a little bit activist and i love that phrase because it doesn't feel overwhelming doesn't feel like it's going to take up our whole lives or ruin our lives or we're going to be, you know, we're going to feel powerless. Or, but just to be a little bit activist. So these things I said about writing a letter about plastic or... I can do that within the realm of being a little bit activist without feeling overwhelmed. So I think that's a really nice phrase that we can all work into our lives and then say, I'd like to be a little bit activist and what are the ways in which I'd like to be a little bit activist? So when Extinction Rebellion came along in the year that I wrote it, which was last year, I thought, well, what are these crazy guys doing? You know, who are they? And what are they doing? And why are they doing it? And why are they blocking all the roads in London and pissing everyone off? So I thought, well, I better go and find out what they're doing because they're really walking the talk. So I went into Extinction Rebellion with some reservations. I thought, but and I don't want to get arrested, but I would like to support them in some way. So I joined the Samba Band <laughs> because obviously I'm letting Joy be my guide and um, drumming is a fantastic thing, makes everybody happy, makes the, makes the people protesting happy, it makes the passers-by happy, even, the, even makes the police happy, you know, and occasionally they forget and admit that. Anyway, so I had a wonderful time in the, in the April Rebellion last year um, just talking to people about why they were doing what they were doing and why they were prepared to be locked under trucks in the middle of the road. And, oh, just some incredible stories, Rob. Teenagers, grandparents. There was a woman I saw last week just in the, in the rebellion that just went by. She was 75 and she was being taken away by the police. And she said, I'm not the criminal. She said, I'm behaving like a criminal because our government is, not, is being criminal and not keeping to the terms of the Paris Agreement. They're 75 years old and they're leading her away. I mean, it's just incredible when you, when you mix with these, these people who are so passionate. Um, so, again, letting joy be our guide. I think it's very good to be a little bit activist in yeah. whatever way, in whatever way we want to, in a whatever way that suits us, but not to not, not to not be activist at all. That's the thing. You know, if you're pissed off that your local council is still using Roundup on spraying chemicals on the land, write to them and say, please, will you stop spraying chemicals on the land? You know, be a little bit activist. If we're all a little bit activist, eventually it'll chip up. And we've just had a, we've just had a traffic. They tried to have a traffic calming scheme in our borough here just to calm the traffic down and have a bit less air pollution so they blocked off all these roads and they tried this new scheme and of course everybody that wasn't happy with it wrote <laughs> and all the people that thought it was a good idea didn't write and so of course the local council's just given up in despair and after it was supposed to be a six-month trial after two weeks it was pulled because all the taxi drivers wrote all the people with their four by fours wrote you know and that's because that's an example of you know evil succeeding because good people are doing nothing so being a little bit activist up for me it works anyway it's manageable yeah i love that and it is totally manageable and, and 
and attainable for a lot of people and he doesn't have to mm. be i think some people think i need to go down to london and join a march and it's like mm. no it doesn't have to be that like you say it can just be a matter of writing a letter or just small actions which do build momentum over a amount of time mm. um, well i think that's in terms of like talking on the book i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to mention from this specifically in the book that you wanted to t- tell the listeners um or if you wanted to, i just got a few other things that i wouldn't mind just um touching no on. no uh, just to finish up on that i mean please please buy the joyful environmentalist <laughs> it's like do what they say make a nice cup of your favorite tea sit down on your favorite sofa please and and read the book and read the book because like greta thunberg says our house is on fire and the co2 emissions are still going up and all the rest of it is talk she goes round. she travels to one country, she travels to another country. The politicians give her kind words and promises and do nothing. The emissions are still going up. It's a serious situation. Um, so please buy the book and read it and enjoy it and take from it whatever ideas you want and then buy it for a friend or two um, for Christmas. And yes, I'm happy to chat about whatever else you'd like to chat about. You just want to talk about my book about sex, don't you, Rob? Come on yeah. We can talk about that. Well, I, I wanted to. My previous book, viewers, was about sex. That was sold quite well. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Well, I was going to touch on. I wanted to see what first inspired you to be a writer, and if you've always, if you've always been interested in that from childhood, and you know what kind of triggered that for you. Um, there's a saying: if you keep a diary, one day your diary will keep you. And I was one of those. I was an only child. Um, so I wrote, I wrote, I think, from about the age of 12, Dear Diary, Dear Diary, Dear Diary. Um, so in that sense, I was always a writer. Um, but then I, I went to drama school. I trained as an actress. I was an actress for 10 years. Then I worked in TV production. And then I had a friend who decided to become a nun in the Church of England. And I noticed that all her friends were horrified and fascinated. So I thought, this is interesting. So I thought I'd go and interview 10 other young women becoming nuns in the Church of England and ask them why they were doing what they were doing. I had a delightful six months sitting in convent gardens talking about God and life after death and all those things. And um, that was my first book. Um, and obviously it wasn't my writing because it was interviews. I just wrote the introduction. But I got lots of nice compliments about the introduction as well as the interviews. And people said, well, what are you going to do next? And um, so then I wrote the second book, which is Battersea Park Road to Enlightenment, which was an exploration of the subject of happiness, um, which I explored by going and doing all the weird and wonderful courses that you can do that help you become a rounder more sensible person and I wrote about my experiences within the courses so that was past life regression and colonic irrigation and tai chi and everything every single workshop I could find at the time and I wrote it so that was that one and that did very well so then I was a writer weirdly amazing um (laughs) and what seven books now yes yes this is uh, that was the seventh one I just wrote. And what I'm interested to do, you, what's your approach to maybe coming over, you know, in terms of writing and getting over kind of creative blocks? Is that do you have a particular way? Because I hear from lots of different people, you know, what their approach is. But 
Is it just to carry on? I think, I think people only have creative blocks when they're writing fiction. Yeah, I think if you're writing fiction and you're, try, and you're trying to make something up, then you have a very different creative process. My, my process is very different in that I will set myself a task, like let's work out everything that we can do to make the environment to help save the planet and have fun at the same time. And then I'll go out and explore everything and write about it. So I don't have creative blocks because my process is more like someone that's been on an amazing holiday and is just gets back and wants to write an amazing email to their friend to tell them all about it, which is why you find my, my writing style quite easy to read because I'm literally writing like I'm writing a letter to a friend, an email to a friend. And then this happened and then this happened and I did this and I suppose you're thinking this, but basically the reason I did this was this and then I did that and then can you believe he said that and then this happened and then I went here and that's the way I write basically. So my problems are not with creative block. My problems are with but the, the publishing, you know, industry. It's, it's, it's a very, um, difficult place to be in now. But then I suppose, isn't every single career difficult at the moment? Um, but no, I love writing. I mean, I always say to people, if you don't love writing, don't write. Because it's the most difficult career to have even if you love the writing it's hard but if you don't love the writing people people write books for a living and they don't enjoy writing i mean it's like i keep saying life is short we're going to be dead soon choose follow your joy as they say follow what makes you want to get up in the morning so don't write if you don't enjoy writing well there's definitely a theme about answer it does and there's a theme about joy that's coming through this obviously in the book now but you're just talking about you know that's the thing that we need to be following more of our joy and stuff but i think one thing that can prevent people sometimes is they might get an inspiration to do something but then the little mm. voice in the head tells them oh you're not going to be very good at this i'm going to get rejected and i watched a little clip of you before on youtube where you were taking through um you were doing a talk somewhere and you were taking people through the letters my rejection letters your rejection letters and i, I just lo i love that so if you could just, just show a bit about that and how you have embraced you know rejection i've been i've been i've been in terrible trouble with publishing for 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 that clip um i actually took it down from a number of places because so many of the people in publishing hated it even though i read them out anonymously and i didn't read i didn't read the names of the publishing houses People don't like it when you tell the truth sometimes. Anyway, uh, I think to answer your question is, no, let me ask you, can you make your question a little bit clearer, a little clarity in your question? I'm not quite sure what you're asking. I'm asking um, how you would get over rejection. You know, if people would have, you know, what tips have you done to persevere when someone said, listen, it's not good enough or you, um, it's not for us. Um, I think if you're, I've, I've had, I could paper a wall with my rejection letters, Rob. So the, the short answer is joy, perseverance, joy, perseverance, joy, perseverance. I used to have that printed on various things. Joy. That's the, that's the key. Every single thing I've had in my life, I've had, from a mixture of joy and perseverance. But, but more profoundly, I suppose, or more, more significantly, 
I've always had an absolute belief in what I'm writing and the way I'm writing it. Like with, with the Battersea Park Road to Enlightenment, for example, um, people said, well, who would want to spend six ninety nine on a book about New Age courses? And I thought, well, every single woman I know actually is interested in all these areas. So no matter how many times people told me this isn't for me, this isn't for me, this is wrong, this is this, this is that. I personally had a complete and utter conviction that this was a good book and that it would sell. Um, and that's been the story of my life, actually, because every single book I've written, I mean, my last book, out of sexuality, if we get a little bit raunchy, I mean, I'd just been, I just attended the first international conference of clitoral stroking in America. And I came back and I thought, we can put that on the back of the book at the bottom. Isabel attends the first international conference of clitoral stroking. And then, and then I got another line. Isabel discovers 10 different forms of orgasm, nine of which she hasn't had, which I thought was charming and self-deprecating and funny. So with those two lines, I thought, I'm going to have an auction here. The auction, you know, the publishing houses are going to be fighting over me. We're going to, we're going to have an auction. We're going to raise a lot. It's, going to, it's like it's going to go through the roof. So, so there I was. I was really convinced that, I mean, the first international conference of clitoral stroking, I mean, that, as far as I was concerned, that was, that was news, right? <laughs> anyway, so I came back and my agent was also quite excited and she started sending it out. And the rejection letters started coming back just so quickly. I, I had a fire. <laughs> and they said things like, I remember one, one rejection said, well, you have been having an interesting time, haven't you? However, this is not something that would be suitable for our publishing house. I thought, oh, my God. Another one said, and I quote, how, oh, how inappropriate in this age of austerity that Lasada is researching sexuality. I said, what? It, <laughs> you go, what? And then just, no, not for us, not for us, not for us, not for us, not for us. Because it's, it's actually very difficult to get a book through the publishing process because in a traditional publishing house, because it's, it's all about the market. I mean, I read something on Instagram today, <laughs> this agent posting, you know, um, first book offer given to, I could be very naughty and look it up. I'm not, obviously, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but, you know, given to um, Instagram influencer. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's already got she's already got 150,000 followers or something on Instagram. It's not exactly a, 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 wait a minute. Something acquires something book from influencer, right? So she's an influencer and she's got, I'm just going to check for you. I'm just going to tell you how many followers she's got. Yes. She's got 117,000 followers on Instagram. So, even if only 10,000 of those followers buy her book out of 117,000, if 10,000 of them buy her book, that publisher's just laughing. 
They don't have to do anything at all. All they have to do is bring it out. She'll write about it on her Instagram feed. And of her 117,000, presumably they're banking on the fact that at least 10,000 will buy the book. So it's a, it's a, it's a no brainer for them. But the sad thing, Rob, is that the content isn't relevant. They don't need to read it. They might read the first chapter just to check that she can write all right, you know, but what was your question again? <laughs> Forgot. <laughs> I'm giving away the secrets of the publishing. Oh yes, about rejection letters, okay. about rejection letters. So the answer to, so is you just have to, you, you just have to believe in what you're doing a hundred percent and you have to know who your market is. So if you've got something valuable to say, and you want it to reach an audience, you have to know who your audience is, and then you have to build your social networks, beep social networks, and you have to build your own email list, and you have to be able to say to them, I've got 20,000 people that, that are on my email list, and you know, it's all, because they just want to know that the book is gonna sell, because it's very hard to sell books. I mean, I've, I've been a writer 20 years, but I haven't built my email list. I've got like, I don't know, 2000 people on my email list. I just didn't, I wasn't paying attention. So although I know I've got a hundred thousand readers out there, I can't reach them. I don't know where they are. I can't, I can't reach them. So the only reason that my publishing company published even this book is because they know how hardworking I am and they know that I will work like a crazy person to get this book out. Um, and I will because I believe, in the, I believe in the subject material. Even if people buy this book and the only thing they do from the whole book is buy a compost bin or change their energy provider and end up with £100 worth of free wine or move their bank to Triodos. I mean, these are just three of the, three of the suggestions in here. The whole book is full of them. But I know the value of what I'm writing and that's what gives me the conviction. And that... In turn, if someone says they want to reject my book, I'm like, well, more fool you. I mean, I'd, I've got 100% conviction in what I'm doing because, and I'm also writing about saving the planet. So I've got, you know, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Anthony Robbins says that if you want to achieve something, Anthony Robbins I wrote about in the Vasty Park Road to Paradise, he says, and it's really interesting, is that if there's anything in life you want to achieve, People start thinking, how am I going to achieve this? But the more important question is why first? Why are you going to achieve it? So he gives the example of if you've got to get into a building that's heavily guarded and you're thinking about how you're going to get in, it's heavily guarded, there's guard dogs, there's, there's police walking around, you, you're just going to go, well, I'm never going to get in. But if, you, if there's someone inside the building that you love that is in danger, then you're just going to get in. You're going to work out a way to get in. And he says, it's no good, for example, just thinking about you want to make money. But if you know that you want to have a, run a children's home in East Asia, or you want to have a boat and sail it around the world, and you know why you want to make money, then you've got, then you know why you're, why you're doing it. Then you're going to succeed. So you have to know so the answer to your question about rejection is about knowing why you're doing what you're doing. And if you know that what you, that what, that you're doing it. And then of course, I suppose I've also got a certain confidence in my writing because I enjoy writing. So I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I know that 
my writing's not boring. <laughs> Someone giving a talk about their book the other day. And they said, and, and, and now I'm going to read you a bit. And, and this won't be too boring. <laughs> if he thinks his own book is boring, I'm please. Please. I could read you any bit of this book. None of it's boring. Because if it was boring, I would have taken it out. No, it's not. It's definitely not boring. And um, I would I would have I would have cut it if it had been boring. You know, and I and I've run it through several people before it's gone to publication. And I say to all of them, if there's a paragraph that bores you, please, I'm not proud. Just let me know. Put a line through it. Yeah, nothing yeah. has bored me in it this week so far. And I'm looking forward Thank to it. Like, Thank really, you, Rob. Really sitting down and not just thinking, what do I need to ask for this interview? And just <laughs> instead I can just enjoy it. And there's some things like I've applied a lot of things over the past decade or so, but there'd be still things in there that I think, oh, I need to do that. I can do that. Just sure. simple I, I hope it's not just, it's, it's also, as I say, for experienced environmentalists as well, not just for people who are beginners. But I thought you were going to ask me about my sex book, Rob. <laughs> Let's go for it. If you're okay for time for a little bit longer, I will. Yeah, yeah. Your listeners are going, talk about the sex book. Talk about this. We want to know about the sex book. They're all thinking that. As long as you promise to buy the Joyful Environmentalist, I will tell you whatever you want to know about the sex book. Well, I... Um... I would like you just to tell some people just just more about more a little bit more about the book. Like for instance, I don't think this was on at the beginning. I've got my, to my, I'm just my get, hold on, hold yeah. on, hold on. I'm gonna get a copy. Uh, and now talking about this book. Yeah, because I was an interview. Do good podcast part two. <laughs> Should cut it sensation. Yeah, we, um, uh, yeah, we were. I think I said it before. I my wife told me about it we were in Mexico and she'd be reading it and as we would be strolling down to get lunch or dinner she'd be telling me about different stories in it and she was like should we go and do this course and we could go and do you know all these different things you could give a little summary about the book and um, that well it's the same it's the it's the same process but a different subject so the gist of it here the gist of sensation was that I found myself in a new relationship with a man that had a very very strong sex drive basically and so i thought to myself well okay if i'm going to be in a relationship with this man uh i need to find ways to make this work and so rather like the book in where i went to explore happiness in this book i went to explore every single thing i could learn how to make sex into better sex in the context of a heterosexual monogamous long-term relationship so in many ways, it's very innocent because it's heterosexual, it's long-term and it's monogamous. So, so I went and did all the weird and wonderful courses that are out there that, to teach you about sexuality. So I started off on a, a women's course and, you know, well, <laughs> the rest is history. You'd have to read it. But it's, um, and that's, that's how I ended up at, at one point in the book doing a, a the first international conference of clitoral stroking in San Francisco. Um, and, I, and it's not, people make assumptions about me in the book. I mean, I think a lot of the publishing companies made a lot of assumptions. <coughs> they assumed that I was perhaps someone that was very sexually out there or very sexually available or very sexually brave, frankly, which absolutely I wasn't. I mean, I, 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 
had been a Christian for many years. I, I married my, my first ever boyfriend and I, you know, and I, I wasn't in any way sexually experienced, which is in a sense why I was a good person to do the book because I wasn't someone, I was someone I think that the reader could identify with more because I wasn't someone that had been very um, sexually active or sexually exploratory. I was very much a, a beginner in all these areas. So, but I, I mean, again, I went to speak to experts. I talked to people. I learned about, I mean, for example, the, you know, the pelvic floor muscles. Um, I, I mean, it, it's again, it's, there's, there's lots, it's, it's a whole book, you know, there's a lot in it. So um, I look at touch. I went to speak to a tantric master. I mean, I, there's... And then running through it, of course, all the time is just a discussion of, uh, of sexuality and, um, and of pleasure and of um, letting pleasure guide us. And I learned in that book that we really are very, very messed up as a nation. I mean, there's anyone listening to this that's thinking, oh, well, you know, my sex life's terrible. I can tell you that you're in probably you and 90% of the other listeners. I mean, the people that are going to be people that are going to be listening to this or to anything, frankly, that have a good, healthy, active sex life is very much a minority, tragically, very, as I discovered, as I went through the book, I mean, I put out some, some appeals on social media, you know, tell me about your sex life. And I, you know, I wanted to sit and cry by the end of it. There was so little, um, and there's so many myths and, you know, oh, it's a terrible, terrible situation. Yeah, we've been um, brainwashed a little bit through films and TV and everything and magazines of, you know, yeah. everyone should be happy and everyone's having great sex. And, but yeah, not they're just, not. Even, not even just great sex. And, and also the intimacy and the connection just seems to be non-existent in, in mm-hmm. the way that's portrayed. So yeah, what I love about the, your approach is like as if you're documenting your own self-development in your life you're going doing these things and you're you're sharing all this stuff and you know plenty of people go and do these things anyway these courses but i love the way you're intertwined it all into your career it's all just meshed into get it's all merged together and you're you know sharing these gifts with the world and you know help helping people to come overcome blockages particularly in this because it is you know particularly in this country it's a it's a bit of a taboo you, you know you're, you're touching on taboo subjects aren't you Mm-mm-mm. yeah yeah. Um, hmm. So that was out a few years ago. This is also funny, though. Sensation. Adventures yeah. in sex, love, and laughter. Well, my wife, she said to me, as soon as I got um, this one, um, <laughs> the, you know, the Joyful Environment list, she said, oh, you'll love reading it. She's got a beautiful style of writing. And oh, it'll just flow sweet. through. So Thank you. That's the thing. I think, you, you know, everything you're delivering it's a it's a very important topic but it's just a way to deliver it and and i think that do you get when you touched on before about that person who's got 117,000 followers do you there's an element of frustration 
that that person who's you know won't have 20 years writing experience and yes might suddenly get a deal and he can sell 10,000 yes yes is the answer very funny I met someone last week who is an acupuncturist and uh just for fun you know I held up my hand and I said because you know they read they can read three pulse points and they tell you everything that's wrong with you and blah 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 and he was going mm, you're really very healthy mm, and he said no let me have a look at your tongue anyway it's all very pleased with everything he said there's just one thing he said there's a he said that there is a lot of frustration. <laughs> I just laughed. And he said, yes, frustration tends to, to, tends to affect the spleen. I'm like, frustration. Currently, I can't think of a single area of my life in which I'm not experiencing frustration. So, yes, of course I'm frustrated, especially with the joyful environmentalists, because, you know, people are out there reading books about, you know, crime and they're worrying about the lives of people that have never (laughs) don't even exist you know they're reading fiction or they're reading you know they're reading stuff that i think well why would anybody in their right mind want to read this and i'm writing about stuff that's really important in a humorous way that can actually make a difference to the planet and i'm jumping up and down going hello (laughs) please i really recommend it and also you know and the environmental movement is so full of gloom you know, people go, oh, yes, it's very depressing. And every day I'm invited, like this thing I went on today, people are talking about how depressing it is, how depressing it is. And, and I'm sitting there going, can you give me the microphone? <laughs> I just I want to go get a solution. And even the Extinction Rebellion, you know, you go and you hear the speakers and they're all talking about the problem. I'm like, please get this person off the stage. Give me the stage for half an hour and I'll tell them 30 things they can do. So yes, I do, I do feel frustrated is the answer. And I wish I'd got into Instagram 10 years ago and I wish I'd got 150,000 followers, but at least all my followers are genuine. <laughs> They're all yeah, real people. Exactly. It's genuine. And in some ways it's quality over quantity, isn't it? With people like I know someone, we work with a children's charity and they managed to get a Liverpool football player to promote something for them and it got millions of views but it didn't equate into donations for the charity because most of the people that were um, watching that were teenagers, young people, and they were just, you know, they watched that for a minute and then they just jumped onto something else. It's just people's attention span is so short at the moment. That's why I say, you know, selling, selling books is hard right now. You know, I mean, the nice thing about this is, you know, the people that do read it, love it and recommend it to their friends. But selling a book stone cold to someone that's never read my books before, that doesn't know that they're genuinely funny, you know, they're going to walk into Waterstones and they're going to, you know, there's, the, there's a thing called being on the tables. This is the first book I've had in a 20 year career that for some reason didn't go onto the tables. It went straight into sections. So, you know, you walk into, book, you walk into Waterstones and there's all the tables and they all say three for two and you walk around and you look at the tables. I mean, there's what I do. It's what we all do. But if for some reason your book goes straight into section, that means you've got one copy spine side out on the second floor in the non-existent environment section. So no one is ever going to see it. And, you know, 90% of the books that come out are going straight into section. Um, So, and I mean, I don't know if you heard, I think it was, there was one day last week, 600 books were published. Wow. They were, they were catching up on the books that were kind of put on hold during COVID. And so publishing, lots of publishing houses just held them off till September. They called it Super Thursday or something. 600 books. I mean, you have got to pity the person that's tentatively written their first work of fiction. Got a book called The Beautiful Tree. I mean, you know, how are they going to sell it? Yeah. 
So I, I can sense your frustration, but I would love to think that by you know you coming on this podcast and it can sell some more for you and also the I other things because so. that's the great thing is that we can there's so many different mediums now that we can get for I know you were on Russell Brand's podcast, is that right? A few years ago? I was on Russell Brand's podcast to discuss sensation. Yes, I was. I bet that was an amazing experience. He is like he's my dream person to get on this podcast. Um, at some point we'll see um, but he's he's, just, he's such an amazing person and I admire Rob you got me you got me you don't need Russell Brand I've got the second best you know yeah yeah, yeah. well if you listen to my did have you listened to my interview with Russell Brand I've, I listened to it for a while ago so I can't I can't actually uh, <laughs> can't remember I've listened to that if you listen to my interview with Russell Brand I think you might find you'd rather have me than Russell Brand <laughs> I mean I'm less famous but I mean, to be honest, Russell, before my interview with Russell Brand, it was one of the, it was one of the few interviews I've done in my life where I actually felt nervous because, it's, because his brain is, is, is like a jacket, like one of those old-fashioned firecrackers. You never know which areas it's going to go off into. So I was sitting there thinking, so am I going to explore, uh, am I going to revise the, you know, the different effects of, of the hormone dopamine on the body and the sexual experience? Or am I going to look on, you know, he might go off into the, the Second Vatican Council and the split in the history of the church when sexuality became, you know, because he takes an interest in everything. On the other hand, you know, he might be asking about. So I kind of tried to revise everything so that whichever area he went off in, I'd be rehearsed. But then I had this, I had this idea because I'd seen him on stage that, uh, and I was a genuine fan because he's a genuinely brilliant comedian. I had this idea that we, that our interview would be like this dance where we'd be really funny. I'd be funny. He'd be funny. I'd be funny. He'd be funny. We'd, we'd have this brilliantly choreographed interview. And then I start the interview and then I realized it's like trying to dance with someone that they've decided what dance they're doing. And there's nothing that you can do that is going to, that is going to move, that is going to move them in because they, they're just in their own dance or in their own bubble. So he was off doing this and eventually I had to say, look, Russell, stop. <laughs> it's like, I've got my, I was there to do my interview about my book and I had to talk about, cause I said, look, there's various things I want to tell you. You're just going to have to be quiet and let me talk. So it was a bit like that but um but yes he was very lovely it was a nice interview but um you should listen to it yeah i'll, listen, I'll, I'll listen back over it and uh re job and i mean while you're digging a garden yes actually uh, you know what that's a it's a wonder i love i love doing that when i love to cook and i love to be in the garden i love to listen to an interview or a podcast and it's just it's a lovely way for me to absorb the information but yeah it, I, I, I find it tricky too. just to sit still and to listen to something I much prefer ever going out for a walk and stuff like that. But I believe I won't keep you much longer. We've gone on longer than I expected, but the content's been so good and I hope the listeners have stayed and maybe it will cut it into two, two parts. Um, but I believe you've interviewed the Dalai Lama as well, his holiness at some point. <laughs> you have done your homework, Rob. You've done your homework. I'm sorry. I keep messing up the light by leaning forwards and backwards. Uh, yes, I have indeed interviewed His Holiness. Now you're speaking about one of my other books. Do I have a copy? I've got a postcard here. And then, oh. Doing good podcast. The Do Good Post Podcast Part 3. For Tibet with Love. Right, For Tibet with Love. I have actually got the book, but it's out there. I can't reach it whilst without taking my headphones off. Um, yes, this is a book in which I went to explore... 
how can one person make a difference in the world? Um, and the particular um, area that I was exploring in this book was the Tibetan cause and what's been done by the Chinese to the Tibetans in my lifetime. And, um, and I used as my framework the serenity to accept what we can't change, the courage to change what we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And right at the very end of the book, uh, I had the privilege of traveling to India and interviewing His Holiness. Indeed, I did. In fact, stay there one moment. As, as you asked, I think this should work. I hold this up. See that? Look, there we are. Isn't he cute? Yeah, amazing. There we are, and we're in India. There you go. Confirmation. Yeah, I really did. Uh, yes. Why? What did you want to ask about that? <laughs> Well, it was more like I've I had someone on from Action from Happiness and the Holiness Dalai Lama is the patron of that company, and I've read some of his books, and it just I just I can only imagine like me doing these podcasts. I love to have interesting conversations and absorb myself with people. Like for instance, I couldn't just get in touch with you and say, "Oh, do you want to do you want to speak for a couple of hours?" You know, but if I can do it through this through this medium and I can share people's messages, so I, I'm just I think to be around that person, that energy. And um, I think Russell Brand actually was also on stage with him. And there's just, there's something, there's something about that quality about being around those people. It's just like, I'd imagine Eckhart Tolle would be the same and, and other very enlightened spiritual people walking on the earth to just, you know, couldn't, can't not have an effect on you. So I'm just interested. I'm just really interested in that stuff. Your information, Eckhart Tolle would be, in my experience, Eckhart Tolle, nothing like the Dalai Lama at all. <laughs> I do believe they were on stage together. I saw a thing where they were both on stage and it was actually hilarious. I um, bet it was. The, the crowd the crowd was just um in, in stitch is watching them both. So yeah, um yeah, it would be quite The be difference quite. is that the Dalai Lama's never claimed to be enlightened. People think of him as an enlightened man. He says, I just an ordinary monk. Yeah. He's and just an ordinary monk. He's one with an extraordinary perspective, though, I must say. I mean, as I, as I said at the time in the book, that in, being in, interviewing him was a bit like, it felt a bit like an ant interviewing a giraffe. That, because his perspective on history and international events is so huge that he's looking at everything from the perspective of the giraffe, and I'm looking upon it, everything from the perspective of an ant. You know, so I would say, what can we do? Thinking of my reader, who I kind of visualise as being called Jane and working for the electricity board and going to work on the Northern Line, you know, and he speaks in terms of generations and continents. And so he has a very different perspective on things yeah. from your average person like me. And me. Um, one thing as well, just segue from that, I, I saw you ask Moody a question as well. Now, I've really got into Moody over the past couple of months. I was really into Ram Dass for a while. Oh, well, you're on to all the spiritual people, Rob, aren't you? I, you know, I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I like um, um, the not-so-spiritual You stuff. ask me a question and I'll answer it for you as Moody would. Okay, then. 
<laughs> I'll give you the answer Muji would give you. Okay, that sounds interesting. That's... That sounds very that sounds very egotistical of me, but what I'm, I should say is I'll give you the answer that I think Muji might give you based on my experience of spending time with Muji and studying his teachings. That sounds okay. a little bit more. I was just I was just being playful reader, don't worry. I haven't got mad. I don't think I'm in any way enlightened. I just thought I can probably answer as Muji would answer. Okay, I'll go big with this one then. Um, okay, go for it then. Muji, what is the, the meaning of life? Who is it that speaks? His name Who is, is asking? That would be me. From which, which, from a different, which aspect of me? Who is me? <laughs> You're going to just take me down a, a can of, open a can of. No, we, we won't go down the rabbit hole. We won't go down the rabbit hole because we don't have time and, and you really need an enlightened being to take you down the rabbit hole. But basically, uh, the Advaita tradition is based on, um, as you'll know if you've listened to Tolly, is based on the nature of consciousness. So it, it's a question of who is asking the question and whether you're sitting in awareness of your who you who it is that you are and who it is that you're not. Anyway, that's for Muji. Yeah, he's um, he's wonderful. Um, I I spent a lot of time with Muji in the book, The Battersea Part Road to Paradise. Should we do part? Part four. <laughs> Battersea Park Road to Paradise, one of my other books. This is the book where I actually, where I was living with the Ashaninka as well. But in that book, I also spend, I've got a whole section uh, with Muji. And this was when he was still living in Brixton before they moved to Sahaja in Portugal. As you might know, they have a community in Portugal now. But at the time he was living in Brixton and he had reasonably small gatherings on Sunday night in his home. So I had the pleasure and privilege of spending quite a lot of time there with him so I'm quite well versed in Muji's teachings and honored to call him my friend oh, amazing <laughs> That's, that is quite yeah that is an honor um but as he would say he would I'd imagine that he would say well you know there's you know everyone is equal and yes no, yes yes no, what I mean no, is no. I've I, I mean if I if he if I if we were walking down the street and he saw me he'd be able to greet me by my name you know amazing he knows <laughs> yeah he does he, he seems I, I just love it's just I love looking at his face it's just I uh, love his humor I love obviously I love anyone who teaches anything with humor so and he he teaches with humor so um but his following has become very massive in the last couple of years he's you know there's millions of them. Yeah, and it's a very timely message. It's a bit like your message. Hopefully that you can have some millions of followers in, in some time. Um, but I think like, you know, Eckhart Tolle and Muji. Will they all be coming to me through being on this podcast, Rob? They will be, yeah. They will be, will yeah. they? Oh, that's, that's great. Thank you. I wish. <laughs> I wish. We'll see. We'll see you in the future. Maybe I'll have you back on in five years' time and uh, maybe I'll there'll be a certain different, not Muji's level, God. I'm amazed that you, that you feel that we can speak for this long. I mean, I'm sure you'll edit this, but, but even then, I, I'm amazed that there are people that you think will sit and listen to, to something that's this long. Well, I know I'm not in this bracket. I'm certainly not in um, Joe Rogan's bracket. 
but he just had a podcast on the other day and it was just under six hours long with someone. So, oh, well, there you are. All right. Well, should we go? We start. <laughs> I'll get my other books then, shall yeah, I? We'll, we'll go for all the books. No, uh, to be honest, I've never done one over two hours. And, okay, we'll stop and, then. And I, um, if you want me back on to talk about the sex book, then you'll have to rebook me. Yeah, we'll have to. But I'll tell you what, one final question for you, which I like to okay. ask all my guests is so uh, this podcast is all about doing good, which you're definitely yeah, doing. Right. And I love your conviction and your, Thank you. your approach and everything with your books, all of them, particularly this one. What advice would you give someone who's looking to go out and do their own bit of good in the world? <laughs> it's so tempting to say, get your favorite cup of tea, <laughs> find your favorite chair. Sit down and read The Joyful Environmentalist. That will give you lots of ideas. And then you can pick your favorite ones. Do you know what? That's great. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that because you've already answered lots of great knowledge <laughs> and tips throughout the, throughout the podcast. So I think we'll go with that. And I'll just, you know, raise this again. Yeah, you know, it's definitely, um, I'm looking forward to delving <laughs> deep into this. So, well, thank you, Rob. Well, Isabel, thank you so much. I've really it's been enormously fun. It has been really fun and I, I've, it's been an honour for me um, to talk to you and to, and to find out more about um, your, you know, the book and just your journey and what you're doing. And I hope that many people will get this book. I'm sure it will because it's so timely. You know, it's, it is so timely and so, so needed at this time and, and you're approaching the positivity about it. So thank you for speaking with me today. And good luck with your baby. Oh, no, I'm going to need a bit of luck, aren't I? When's your baby due? It's due on the 19th of October. Oh, blessings, many blessings. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. Well, thank you, I really appreciate it. Bye. Bye.